Let's return to Matthew chapter 4. Today I want us to study commitment to discipleship. And next week, Lord willing, conclude our series on commitment with a commitment to giving thanks. This morning, we recognize as disciples of Jesus Christ, we should be committed to following. It's what a disciple does. But perhaps an understanding of this following will be helpful. In our text, we read that Jesus said to these men that were simply going about their vocation as fishermen, follow me, follow me. My question for us to study today is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Sounds like a simple question, but it might be more challenging if I asked you to give us your couple of thoughts of what it means to follow Jesus. We think we know it, and we do, it just doesn't always come out in clarity. Especially imagine if you were talking to a new believer and was eating lunch with you and following up on this sermon, he, he asked you, like, what, what does it mean when Christians talk about following Jesus? How would you explain that to him? The times we speak in these generalities may just be laziness of our language. We kind of know what we mean, and so we say these almost cliche kind of Christian phrases. Other times, though, there may be a lack of clarity. We may not really know exactly what it means. Or at least it hasn't translated into intentional thoughts that help us to live right during the week. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Now, to be sure, I don't think there is one exact answer. Frankly, I think the more you read the New Testament, the details of the answer just keep growing. So we could choose from all kinds of answers, in a sense. But for today, in order to answer this question, what does it mean to follow Jesus, I want us to start where the disciples started. Not with a theological definition, but simply an experience. I want us to look at the the context and the setting of this encounter with Jesus when he says, follow me, and see how they would have shaped an understanding of what exactly Jesus meant by that. I would venture to say, in the, by studying the rest of the Gospels and some of the disciples' response to Jesus, that they really had no idea what he was asking when he said, come follow me. There may have been submission to an obedience and a willingness to see where this would lead, but I don't think they had a good sense of where this would go. Frankly, we could look at John 21 three years later after living with Jesus for three years, and Jesus is still telling Peter that you don't even understand what you mean when you say you're willing to follow. You, you, in veiled language, he says, men are going to take you where you don't want to go and essentially put you on a cross. They just, they didn't know what they were signing up for. They just knew there was a compelling force in this person, Jesus of Nazareth, that demanded, as Watts would say, my life, my all. But ask them what discipleship means for 
followers of Jesus, and they may not have had a great answer, but in studying this first encounter of disciple-making, I think we can see some things that help us answer the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? We begin with a foundation of repentance. Our paragraph actually begins in verse 18. It's kind of the new story unfolding where Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. But obviously, we heard some thoughts from a previous verse, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we could jump into the story. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, but we'd want to know, like, what's this all about? Who is this Jesus? And Jesus had introduced himself and his message in one word, repent. Oh, he unfolded that. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he's going to expand that message beyond Galilee into all the regions of Israel. But his message is built on this foundation of repentance. Jesus began to preach, saying, repent. So the backdrop of this beautiful portrait of following Jesus, we're about to see what it looks like for Jesus to call followers, disciples. And that's a beautiful picture. These men that walk away from life as they knew it into this new unknown realm of following Jesus as Lord and Master. But the backdrop is this message of repentance. Jesus wasn't traveling throughout all Galilee, teaching a message of self-help or improvement. He wasn't teaching religious rituals. He wasn't going to reinforce what the Pharisees had added as the traditions of men to the weight of the law. He wasn't preaching any prosperity theme. He would seem to be intent on driving away crowds as much as we would think the need would be to draw crowds to the message. Following Jesus is only possible when we have obeyed the call to repent. There is no following of Jesus apart from a life of repentance. Following Jesus means seeing one's own sinfulness, seeing one's own inability at God-pleasing righteousness. You see, the Pharisees had a form of righteousness, but it wasn't God-pleasing righteousness. It wasn't the righteousness that he prescribed that is found only in Jesus Christ. He is the only law keeper. All of us are law breakers. So before Jesus can call men to follow him, imitate him, learn from him, he must first call them to repentance. Martin Luther, in posting his 95 theses, began that treatise with this thesis number one. Essentially, the Christian life is a life of repenting. To follow Jesus is to constantly hate sin and repent of it, knowing that Christ is more valuable than anything that our enemy can offer us in temptation. 
Following Jesus means turning from our sin in confession again and again, confessing, saying the same thing that God says about it. It's an offense to his holiness. And we agree with God in confession. We say, it is, and I've done it again, and I'm putting it aside. Following Jesus means trusting that Jesus' righteousness, his perfect record of law-keeping can be mine. His report card can count for me if I put my faith in him. So this is the life of repentance that Jesus came preaching. This was his inaugural message. You can read it in other gospels as well. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This builds on the message of John the Baptist who came calling men to a righteousness not found in the law, but found in Christ and baptizing them with a baptism of repentance, showing that they were sorry for sin and were craving this one who would come on the heels of John. So keep on repenting this week. We sing often when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Remember, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for our forgiveness again and again and again. So rather than looking back at this week and seeing the dismal failure of sin and thinking, woe is me and I'll never get it right, well, that's kind of true. Woe are you and you will never get it right on your own, but Christ has gotten it right. So take heart, confess that sin, repent of it, and keep on trusting in Jesus. It's a life of repenting that begins the life of discipleship. Well, what else do we see in this first lesson of discipleship? These first disciples, this first call to follow, comes on the heels of the call to repentance And then we read Jesus in verse 20 saying, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Jesus speaks and Matthew is careful to tell us descriptively that the response was immediate. So we just take that as as the story unfolds in our minds. Disciples are working on their nets. This prophet, as they might have thought of him, is coming by their boats of the family business. And he issues this interesting command. Interesting because who who is this to tell us to follow him? What, What is it his business to tell us to leave our business They're working on their nets and they hear this simple imperative, follow me. And immediately they left their nets. Now, let's let's be fair with the text here. If we weren't long-standing church people that have read the Bible often, we would think this is almost a cultish response. Who would be so swayed by One sentence imperative to walk away from everything they know. 
and, and follow this person? Who would do that? Who would walk away from their livelihood? Who, who would risk the provision for their families? What, what is going on here? And it makes us think, uh, we talked about this a little in Sunday school, that something is already at work in them. We would call that the work of the Holy Spirit to confirm to them that this one is worth walking away from boats and nets. This one is worth following. When he says, I will make you fishers of men, odd as that sounds, they were willing to do it. This isn't cultish. This is the power of God at work in the lives of men who once lived for themselves and now are willing to surrender everything to someone else, to be their Lord, their master, their teacher. This is their livelihood. This is the family business. Wouldn't there be a lot of questions to ask? Wouldn't there be a lot of details to work out? Wouldn't Peter be saying, okay, Lord, I mean, I really want to do that. It sounds like a great proposition, but I, I've got a family to feed. Is not that valid, like in our thinking of personal responsibility, roles to fill? Of course it is. But it's just secondary to the, to the spirit of submission to the call of God. I'm sure they asked questions and, and found answers and details for how this is going to work. But the initial response was simply, yes. With complete abandon, yes. If, if that one can command like that and stir in me a response like this, then I think that one can take care of all my questions and answers. If we could put words in their mouth, we would say, if... If this kingdom is coming, it's worth seeking first. And all the other things will be taken care of. What we see here is a lesson for these first disciples. If, if they were telling us what it means to follow Jesus, they would say, yes, it, it's built on a life of repentance. But secondly, there has to be a restructuring of priorities. I can't bring all my priorities to the table and negotiate a deal in following Jesus. I have to trust him that when he says, do this, I can do that. And all of the priorities that I know are even right and good will be okay. They won't suffer. Peter's wife and kids didn't suffer because he followed Jesus. We must restructure our priorities. This illustration of this story, these men with nets and hands, fixing them, repairing them, getting them ready, and hearing a voice, follow me, and immediately they left their nets. It's like we can see it in slow motion. The looking at Jesus, the hearing these words, and their hands let the nets drop to the deck. And they climb overboard and they follow him. It's like we have a vivid illustration of a proverb that we know well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. I know there's details to be worked out, and I know you have questions. 
But in all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct the path. The path of following, the path of responsibility. Jesus could tell Peter, I'm glad you're concerned about your family, but my question wasn't, are you concerned about your family? It's, will you follow me? Because if I have that from you, we can take care of the family. Family business, livelihood, income, all taken care of. But that's not really the question. The question is, will you follow? Following Jesus means restructuring your priorities. Perhaps this will be your personal assignment this week. From having studied this passage, what would it look like to rearrange some things in my life to reveal that I'm following Jesus? It may not be mere assignment, it may be a personal battle. Because other priorities are constantly crowding out the things that would make you look like a zealot. Someone who is really passionate about your walk with God. It just gets crowded out. It's not that it's non-existent. It just gets crowded out by other priorities. There are nets to mend. After all, there are, there's a livelihood to be made. Wrestle with those priorities. But hear Jesus' voice ringing over all of them. Follow me. Follow me. Third, we see that following Jesus means doing life with a fellowship of followers. These first disciples that were called recognized immediately that it wasn't a solo job. This was a team effort. As soon as the first fishermen are called, Peter and Andrew, his brother, it's not too far down the shore that we encounter the rival family business. And these guys are trouble, right? They're the sons of what? Not the sons of dove peace offerings, right? They're the sons of thunder. These guys know how to get around. They're, they're a street savvy or a Sea of Galilee savvy kind of crowd. A uh, little rough around the edges, maybe. Loose cannons, we might call them. And we see some of that in the Gospels. Sons of Thunder is their nickname. And Jesus gives them the same kind of ultimatum, the same command. Peter and Andrew are probably already thinking from the start, what have we gotten ourselves into? The Sons of Thunder, really? It's a fellowship of followers. They learned quickly the corporate nature of our discipleship. It was our study in the Equip hour. From 1 Corinthians 12, what do we see there that, that reminds us that following Jesus is, is done in relationship with other disciples? It's the whole body that is designed to be healthy, not just you, your part. In practice, our own Christian walk must include relationships with spiritual nuance. Again, it... This doesn't mean you can't have the family over and enjoy watching the football game. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy amusement parks and hunting in this fall season and doing all those things that just make up life. It simply means that in our relationships, 
they cannot be merely about all of those things. They may be things God has given us freely to enjoy, but if we only spend all of our time in conversation and relationships engaged in surface things that we do enjoy, and it, there's never any spiritual nuance, no spiritual depth, then we're failing in our following. These men realized that they were in this together, but the this that they were in was the kingdom of God. There was spiritual purpose driving what they were doing. Along the way, I'm sure Jesus and the disciples, we know that there were women that followed along and helped serve them in all kinds of ways. So there's this entourage, and I'm sure there was plenty of enjoyment of stuff, plenty of small talk, and the things that just shape quick, casual conversation. But can we, really, can we really imagine Jesus' ministry to these disciples in preparing them to take the gospel to the nations? Can we imagine conversation with no spiritual nuance? With no depth of exploring why we could enjoy things like dead turkeys that we eat and football games that we watch and hunting in the woods and water skiing and whatever else? Why can we enjoy these things? What's the context of God and his goodness that we have all that stuff? Surely they would have explored that. This last week or so, we were talking about how Jesus could take any common illustration and, and, and drive to the heart of its spiritual truth, its significance. Do that in your relationships. Remind each other we have much to be thankful for if the conversation was small and about just simple things in life. But there are plenty of conversations that we have where it's about the hard stuff of life and the burdens and the stresses and the things that seem to be, you know, zapping the life out of us. Those need spiritual depth to them. A fellowship of followers. You're not living the Christian life alone. Lean into God's grace in giving us other people to help us follow him. And so we would encourage you to participate in ladies' studies, in a men's forum, in a small group. Have lunch with somebody. Look around the room and see who you don't know well and remind yourself, 1 Corinthians tells me that person was given to this body, to me, for the common good, what could I receive from them? And share the coffee or the lunch together and just realize that we are called to follow Jesus alongside of all these other people. It's a fellowship of followers. Enjoy the conversation after the service. Cut it off and just invite them over for lunch. At least you can sit comfortably and talk, right? Why stand in the lobby? All of that is, is the evidence that we're, we're understanding this. We're starting to grasp the significance that my Christian life is done in a context of the church with others. Number four, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means an intake of teaching, a steady diet of truth. Because if these disciples were asked, hey, tell us, what are you, what are you finding it to mean in following Jesus, 
part of their answer would be, I'm not sure yet. But we're just going all throughout the area preaching this same message again and again. He's teaching in all the synagogues. Something about the words of Jesus are shaping their understanding of what it means to be a follower. You're going to hear a whole lot of what Jesus says. And so Jesus goes throughout all Galilee, teaching, place after place, synagogue after synagogue, proclamation after proclamation. Being a disciple means you know something of what your master teaches. There comes a point in the life of a disciple where people start asking the disciple about the master's teaching. And we see that in the Gospels. The Pharisees come to the disciples and say, hey, your master's doing this. What does that mean? Why is he doing that? And you're expected to know what he teaches. You're supposed to understand that. Because you've had this steady diet of his truth. The Great Commission is about passing on Jesus' teaching and how to obey it. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That was Jesus' commission to the disciples. You've heard my teaching, now pass it on. So you need to be taking in the word in order to be a dispenser of the word. Let the word dwell in you richly, Paul told the Colossian believers, so that it would overflow in your conversation with others. You'd find yourself speaking to one another in the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs with truth. Take in the word so that you can pass on the word. Simple following for this week. Take in the word. You're hearing it right now and you always listen well, but I would, I would suggest that one intake is probably insufficient for the week. At least if it's left alone, maybe if you're stewing on it and meditate on it, looking at a few cross-references, just exploring it a little bit. But I would commend to you preaching you here on the radio. Is it flawless and perfect and engaging like every Sunday morning is? <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not the Sunday morning or the radio. But there, you're going to hear truth. You'll be encouraged. Read the books. Read the devotional studies. When anchored in God's word, that, that's intake. And you're hearing things, and now the word's dwelling in you so that when you hear someone's trouble, someone's sorrow, someone's rejoicing, you're echoing with truth. As a fellowship of followers, recognizing we need the word. We need the words that God has spoken. So take in the word this week and ask God to show you clearly the opportunities to pass on the word. Maybe even the very word that you took in. Lord, who needs to hear this? When we study the Swedish method of Bible study with the teens, one of the questions we want them to answer is, is captured by an icon, just a smiley face. Who do you tell? That's great. You saw this in the Word. This is what it looks like in your life. Who do you tell? Who needs to hear this? What is your plan to take in God's Word before next Sunday? 
Figure that out this afternoon. On this Lord's Day, spend a little time asking the question, when else can I take in the word this week? Following Jesus means, number five, you will come to recognize a hope of goodness. Verse 23, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Gospel. Again, Christian word, but we know what it means. Good news. If these disciples were asked, okay, guys, tell us, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Adding to this, man, he's teaching all the time. We just hear teaching, teaching, teaching. They would also say, we keep hearing about the good news. This is good news. He keeps telling us that this is good news that has arrived. This is God's news. God's doing something. That's good news. So I don't know what it's going to end up like or what it really means, but it's something about good news. As we read this first encounter of discipleship, we cannot miss that Jesus went everywhere announcing good news. This news brings hope. It brings life. This news satisfies. We saw that the other week in looking at the woman at the well. Living a life, constantly pursuing someone's affection, constantly pursuing satisfaction, a place of belonging. I want to be somebody. I want to be known by somebody. I want something consistent, faithful. I want to be satisfied. And Jesus says, You drink of this water and you'll never thirst again. You'll never feel dissatisfied again. This is good news. This news is the goodness that carries us through all the badness of this life. The message of hope that was illustrated in all the healing. So he goes everywhere proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing all these diseases. It's as if he would say one thing and then illustrate it right before their eyes. So when he says, I can forgive sin, and tells a man, rise up and walk, the intention is that we step back and think, maybe he can actually forgive sin too. Maybe the message is true that there's hope for the brokenness of this life that he could heal it. See, the Jews grew up singing the songs of the Old Testament. And one of them in the Psalms is, he heals all our diseases, cleanses all our iniquities. He is a restorer of the broken. It's the great story of the gospel. God creates all things good and man ruins it by sin. But Christ comes as healer, as restorer. And ultimately, we see that final culmination of God's glory in heaven. This hope of goodness was the fulfillment of what Isaiah had prophesied. We didn't read it, but look back at verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. This is speaking of Jesus. 
And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. So, you know, we're picturing that little sliver of the land of Israel. You've probably seen it on the Bible map. Sea of Galilee in the north, river Jordan running down to the Dead Sea. Little strip about the size of New Jersey, so not a big country. North, Galilee, south, think Jerusalem. So these references here are just giving us the map a little bit. And so Nazareth is kind of up closer to Galilee. That's the region. That's, that's going to be Jesus' home base of ministry. That's kind of where he's going to stay when he's not traveling back and forth from Jerusalem. Well, Isaiah the prophet had said this, verse 15, The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. You see, discipleship should be associated with the hope of goodness. It should be associated with light piercing the darkness, with the dawn. So my house faces to the south, and so the one window on the side of our house that faces east is right there in our bedroom. And you can look out and on certain mornings see that orange bulb coming up through the trees in the east. The dawn of light breaking down the heavy darkness that veils us at night. And the prophet is saying that dawn, that sunrise, the day spring from on high has come in this ministry of Christ. He wants us to know, Matthew does, in writing this paragraph, that this is the very fulfillment of Isaiah 9, which we read every year in the season of Advent, reminding us that the prophet said this day was coming. Jesus, the light of the world, was coming. It's the hope. The hope of God's goodness being unfurled before our eyes. So let me ask you this. If these disciples in Discipleship 101, the first class of disciples, learned that following Jesus is supposed to be surrounded by this aura of hope in a good message, let me ask you, how could your life better reflect the hope and goodness of your faith? How can, how can the way you go about living life reflect something of, of the good news, of this hope that Jesus came to restore and heal and fix? That light is shining. Do you need to be more word-influenced and less news-influenced? How much did it bother you that the elections were a flop for what we think would be you know, real change? Was that your great hope? Or were you immediately bolstered by the reality that our God reigns and light has dawned and the darkness will not overcome it? Would a bit of gospel optimism be more consistent with this thought of good news? 
I, I know some of, some of you tend to kind of the negative side at times. And maybe that could be washed a little bit, refreshed with a reminder, we of all people know the good news. And I know life is hard. And it, and it is hard. We all know to see a nation that once stood for some moral truth now stands for nothing moral or truthful, or at least very little. We see those winds of change bringing in things we don't like. But where is our gospel optimism? It was known a few centuries back as Puritan optimism. This hope that maybe it's really true that the kingdom of God is advancing. Maybe it's really true, even when we don't see it in our particular surroundings. Maybe it really is like a mustard seed that when planted just keeps growing and is going to give shade and relief to people all over the world. So if that's more than maybe true, let's find a way to communicate with the way we respond to life and circumstances that we are a hopeful people, driven by what we believe is good news. The light has dawned. Finally, following Jesus will demand an understanding of authority. Jesus came teaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of a kingdom. And know this, the kingdom is good because it is the expression of the authority and the rule of a benevolent king. A good king has a good kingdom. That was a lesson we were supposed to learn all through the Old Testament. Here was a good king. He did right in the sight of the Lord. Here was a bad king, and it's always the similar language. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then once in a while, there are some of them did right in the sight of the Lord and took down some idols, but didn't deal with all of them. And there's great kings like Solomon. Wow, the, the height of glory of the kingdom. Oh, but kind of contaminated by some of what we know. David, isn't he the, maybe the greatest king? Kind of know some dirt on him too. What about King Uzziah? the other Mount Rushmore of those 40-year giants of righteousness, and yet dies a leper because of his unbelief. We're supposed to be learning that only a perfectly righteous king can have a perfectly righteous kingdom. It's good news that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, has come near. It's great news that the king is good, but make no mistake, the king is also king. Yes, he's a good king, and we can celebrate that, but remember, in, in celebrating that he's good and good to us, remember he's also king. And the goodness is matched equally with authority. Following Jesus means that we will be more and more inclined to both understand and embrace the authority of God. So that when he says, follow me, we don't say, I think I'll do that, but I have a few questions. No, we get right to authority. 
Yes. Do we understand kingdom authority? We speak so often of Jesus as Lord. And yet that means he holds absolute sway, control over us. And he does that, the New Testament unfolds, by the Holy Spirit in us. Just as alcohol, when consumed in large volumes, will take control and manifest its influence over you. So, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, the Holy Spirit should so take control of you that when you get out of bed tomorrow, you are walking in steps that are designed to demonstrate Jesus is Lord. And you do things that you do because Jesus is Lord, and you say no to certain things because Jesus is Lord. And that lordship is being evidenced in his control, his absolute control, which is all good news. Because remember, this is gospel of lordship, gospel of authority, gospel of kingdom rule. It's good news that no longer am I like my father, the devil. I'm like my father in heaven. That's because he's taken over. His authority now reigns in my life. These disciples understood kingdom authority. They learned it, and so must we. So today, we commit to follow Jesus, hopefully knowing at least a little bit of what that means by looking at the first ones who were asked to follow Jesus And I would suggest one last thought. We commit to follow Jesus to what end? We see it in the text. Verse 24. So his fame spread. Throughout all Syria and all these places, his fame spread. Now, fame is usually a bad thing in our minds. Most preaching contexts of fame is, oh, don't live for fame, as if you really had any real potential of being famous, right? I was told many times as a kid, don't live for fame. And I'm thinking, what avenue could I possibly be famous in? Not going to happen. I don't shine bright enough for that. But fame here is a good thing. His fame, his, his being known, and for good things, was spreading. So your discipleship this week, your following this week, is intended to make God look good to spread his fame, to let through you his glory fill the whole earth as the Psalms often long for, to show his power to redeem and transform because of what he's done in your life. Your discipleship this week is intended to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, Peter told us. So you might not know everything there is to know about discipleship. But you know at least the first lessons that the fishermen gleaned, not by specific words from Jesus, but by just following him and realizing, oh, I see what this is about. We have the benefit of it being right on the page in front of us. We can know what the first disciples learned about following. So let us go from here with a little 
bit better understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Heavenly Father, teach us by your word the simple faith of following. May your Holy Spirit guide us this week in our pilgrim journey. Give us a sense of privilege and a sense of duty to spread your fame. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, who is Lord, Master, Savior. Amen.